All right, good morning again. I'm assuming, Scott, these will get turned down a little bit, right? This is the first time we got some newer lights right here, and I can see like 30% of you. It's super blinding. The, so when I came up into the announcements during the first service, uh, I thought I was going to fall off the stage. <laughs> the, uh, this morning, I have the uh, pleasure of wrapping up chapter two of Colossians uh, with you. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter two. We're going to be looking uh, at the last few verses, uh, verses 20 to 23 specifically. And as we've worked through this book over the course of the summer, we have uh, noticed a theme, right? And the theme being that Christ is sufficient, right? It's been this, this theme about his sufficiency, that, that, that Christ is truly above all. And uh, the church... Um, of Colossae, they're, they're experiencing some pressures from, from both Jews and from Greeks or, or uh, Gentiles. And, and the pressure is that they are to supplement their worship of God in order to, to be approved by them. And, and last week, we had a crucial point in this book where we saw that the Jews we're promoting the observance of ceremonial laws, which I'll talk about a bit more later. But these ceremonial laws um, uh, come up in festivals, new moons. You remember reading about Sabbaths, dietary restrictions. And then the Greeks or the Gentiles were promoting this sensationalistic form of worship, asceticism, the worship of angels and visions and, and pride without reason and, and sensuous minds. And, and the more that we look at this book together, uh, the more I'm convinced that what this local body of believers, uh, what they're struggling with really is, if I boil it down, is the fear of man. They're really struggling with the fear of man, and that's a common idol cluster in, in many uh, of our lives. I think we all struggle with it in some way. When my son, <clears throat> early on when, I, when my son was born, uh, he uh, hated being buckled down in the car seat when we would go places. Still actually hates that. And, um, and so Braden and I, my wife and I, we would do things to d- try to distract him from noticing that he's in the car seat. And so we would play these silly songs and nursery rhymes. And, and, um, and so, <clears throat> and that, that worked sometime, but it was worth a shot every time. And uh, one day my wife, uh, she was out of town and it was just my boy and I, and we were uh, riding down the road. It was a beautiful day. And I had my window rolled down because it was a nice day. And I come up to a stoplight, and, um, and I get this feeling uh, that I'm being watched. And I look to my left, and I see this biker dude, uh, like a real man's man, uh, like a real, like never tapped his toe to a melody type of guy, uh, staring at me. And, um, and then I realized that I was belting Old MacDonald at the top of my lungs. <laughs> And my window was rolled down. And then I realized that my son's window was up, so he couldn't see him in the back. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I'm at this red light. It's just me and that guy there, him staring at me, me singing old McDonald, him not seeing my boy. And uh, I decide that the only way that I can re- remedy the situation is by slowly rolling my window up. 
and then rolling my son's window down so as to expose him to this stranger on a motorcycle and then driving off as quick as possible when the light turned green. Um, We sing nursery rhymes in the Tomlinson car. But um, for a moment there, there was this stranger that entered my life for about 15 seconds. I cared a lot about what he thought about me. I didn't want him to think I was some creep singing Old MacDonald by himself in a car somewhere. I needed him to know I had a boy. And, uh, and I think a lot of us struggle with what could be labeled as fear of man. And, and, uh, and I use a silly story to illustrate that, but fear of man really, if left unchecked, if left unchecked in our hearts, it could lead us to disobey uh, the Lord, to disobey God's law and to uh, disobey uh, the gospel of God. And before we dive in this morning, because we're going to spend the whole sermon talking about fear of man, I want to give us a baseline definition so we're all uh, on the same page. If you're taking notes, fear of man is when we maximize man's law and opinions and minimize God's law and gospel. Fear of man is when we maximize man's law and opinions and minimize God's law and gospel. Think about that for a moment. That's, that's exactly what we see going on here in this local church in the first century. Right? The Jews and the Greeks, they're saying that the believers at Colossae, they're not qualified to be Christians unless they submit to regulations and, and, and standards of worship and of life. And many of us struggle with fearing man more then we fear God, and, and we would do well to heed the words of the Apostle Paul here in Colossians. I kind of let the cat out of the bag early, but as we kind of go through our sermon this morning, it, I want us to see what the fear of man actually does to us. And then by the end of the sermon, Lord willing, we're going to see that the remedy for fear of man is, is this gospel-saturated fear of God. It's this gospel-saturated fear of God. And so look with me. Colossians chapter 2, the last three verses, 20 to 23. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. This is what the Apostle Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, wise, if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you that, that your word when it was written here to this local church, God, that it was relevant to them, Lord, that it ministered to them right where they were. And God, because it's living and active, it's relevant to us, God, and it can minister to us where we are. And so I pray that your word would would penetrate our hearts deeply, Lord, that it would orient our souls toward you, God, that I pray your Holy Spirit would help us to repent of the places we need to repent and trust in the areas that we need to trust, Lord, ultimately seeing that Christ is sufficient. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing, if you're taking notes, I want you to see out of this, is that the fear of man 
Uh, it makes us forgetful. Fear of man makes us forgetful. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, he, here, he, 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 he poses a question to these Christians uh, in this local church, and he begins with, with this first-class conditional cause, this word if here. And this word if, it can be translated and, and should be translated to the word since. Paul's saying since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. He's saying since you share union with Christ, why are you in danger of living as if you belong to the world? Why is that a temptation for you? Why are you in danger of submitting to regulations that are contrary to the gospel of God? The Colossians here, they're in real, they're in real danger, and I hope you sense the urgency uh, that the, the Apostle Paul writes with, right? We have, and we've covered this early on, but Epaphras, who's, who's probably the pastor of this local congregation, we're, we're not so sure, but but he's a spiritual authority there, and he's concerned about the direction this church is headed in uh, because of the pressures from these unbelieving Jews and Greeks that are telling them they need to supplement their worship. So that he goes and he finds the Apostle Paul, and he gives the Apostle Paul the report. It gives him, here, here's the status on the ground here with these Colossian believers, and Paul is concerned, and he's concerned enough to write this letter that we, he, that we have that's preserved even to this day. And so there's an urgency in the Apostle Paul's tone here because the Colossians were in danger of believing that they were still alive to the world. They're in danger of believing they were still alive to the world. And, and, and it wasn't that they were intentionally going to abandon their faith. Right? They're, they're not saying, you know what, this this whole gospel thing, this Jesus in his incarnation, living a perfect life, dying, being buried, being raised again bodily and eternally, and, and then ascending to the right hand of God the Father and ruling and reigning over all things. It's not that we're unconvinced of that. We're not abandoning that profession. But we want to make sure that we're... Uh, look as religiously as we, we want to look as religious as possible to these these people that are surrounding us and speaking to us we want to be approved by man as religious right? man's opinion regarding the authenticity of their faith mattered a whole lot to the colossian believers here so it wasn't that they were going to intentionally abandon the faith. It was just that they were going to incorporate some other elements that they were being discipled in, if you will, so that they would be approved by man. A couple of months ago, <clears throat> I preached a, a sermon on how not only are we to, to worship the Lord, but, but that God cares about the way that we worship Him. There is such thing as an, un, an unauthorized worship and an authorized worship. The, the, the believers here uh, at Colossae, they were being tempted to incorporate unauthorized worship into their local body so that they could appease man. And they're doing this primarily because they're being forgetful that they share union with Christ, that Christ is sufficient, His gospel is sufficient, His word is sufficient. Every time that we forget 
our identity in Christ, we feel the need to supplement, don't we? We feel the need to supplement. And think about that in your own life because supplementing can show up in your life and it shows up in all of your lives and in my life in, in different ways. It may come in, in, in the form of money or, or material possessions for you. You feel this, this fleeting sense of value and security if you have the best house on the best property in the best neighborhood or you have the nicest cars or the biggest nest egg retirement account. The problem is that stuff is fleeting, right? You're never able to hold on tight enough, so you keep saving money. You never think you have enough money, and you numb yourselves with material possessions, and on and on it goes. It may come in the form of relationships for many of you. You may find your identity or your value or your dignity in a parent or in a spouse or in your kids or in the prospect of a relationship, or of in the fear that you'll never have a relationship. Your identity is so wrapped up in some sort of relationship that you're paralyzed and you're this basket case if the relationship is fractured or non-existent or not what you want it to be. For some of us, it may come in the form of education or, or work. Work especially for men, right? Right, we, men tend to find their identities based in the things that they do, in the things that, rather than in, in who God is for them in Christ Jesus. In regards to education, we go into large amounts of debt to be college educated, don't we? We work long hours away from our families for that ever fleeting accolade or promotion or because we think we're someone's savior. It may come in the form of, of, of serving the local church, serving this local church. We want to be noticed for serving. We want people to take note. We get upset when people don't take note or when we think they're not taking note of us serving. And we think that serving in the local church is the mark of a spiritually mature believer. Or we serve out of guilt. We serve out of pressure. We serve out of pride. Or we serve because we think that that's what's going to get us into heaven. And the point is that the fear of man, it makes us forgetful. And when we're forgetful, we feel the need to supplement. And we all supplement in different ways. And we supplement in order to make ourselves feel better. We supplement in order to numb ourselves from the reality of the condition of our souls. Second thing fear of man does, fear of man devalues the finished work of Christ. Fear of man devalues the finished work of Christ. And, and that's exactly what these false teachers are, are doing in our passage this morning. And they're doing it in two ways primarily. First and foremost, they're doing it by promoting, the, the Jewish leaders are doing it by promoting what's called positive law. And positive law expresses itself in two ways, ceremonial and civil and I, I hope you can stay with me here, but the Jewish leaders are telling the Christians at the Colossian church that the dietary ceremonial laws must be kept in order for their worship to be considered acceptable before God. That's the, the significance of our passage saying, do not handle, taste, touch. And we even saw two chapters earlier 
where, or earlier in chapter 2, excuse me, not two chapters earlier, but earlier in chapter 2 where Paul gets into the, this discourse about being circumcised in the flesh versus circumcised in heart and how we're, to, we're in Christ circumcised of heart. There's no need for circumcision of the flesh. I'll let you tell your children what that means. And, um, but we see that the Jewish leaders here are promoting positive law. And I think we get hung up, and I'm going to give you a, a little bit of what this is. There are two types of law in the Old Testament, okay? There's two types of law in the Old Testament. There's positive law, what I just told you, which the makeup of positive law uh, are the civil and ceremonial laws, okay? Civil and ceremonial laws can be summarized with these festivals and these new moons and these Sabbaths. Pastor Sean began to kind of hit on that a little bit last week, um, uh, regarding eating shellfish, right? Um, we can, regarding eating pork, right? And, and then we, we get into the civil uh, law piece of it, which we see uh, the way the death penalty functioned for sins in the Old Testament that were not crimes, okay? And so um, to diso- disobedience to your parents could be considered uh, punishable by death under the uh, administration of Moses in the Old Testament, okay? It, breaking the Sabbath could be punishable by death um, under the Old Testament. What Paul is saying, that's positive law. That was a shadow of what was to come. Jesus is the substance. We're to do away with that. We're not under the positive law. That's the newness of the new covenant. Now, there's the second type of law that's not the scope of this sermon, so I'm not going to get into it. I'm just going to say the second type of law is what's called the moral law or the natural law. And you see that and you know that is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are enduring and they're binding on believers. They're not the thing that makes you right before God, only the personal work of Jesus, but because the Holy Spirit lives in us as believers, God expects us to uphold His moral enduring law. And so we have positive law, we have moral law. What's being discussed here isn't to do away with the moral law. Paul's not commending that. Paul's saying to to submit yourself to the positive law, to these civil and ceremonial laws, is to act as if Christ never came. It's to act as if he, he were never incarnated. It's to act as if he never lived. It's to behave and live in such a way that, that uh, to, to believe that Jesus never died, that he was never buried, that he was never risen, that he never ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That's what that's saying. Those were a shadow. They're done away with. Thank God they're done away with. We don't submit to those regulations as believers. Does that make sense? Ten of you. The second pressure they were feeling, right? Again, the Greeks here, it was this, this, this mystical and superstitious experience that, that the Greeks were telling them. So they had the Jews on this side telling them, you, you need to submit to the positive law. And then we had the Greeks, the Gentiles on this side that are saying you need to have this mystical and superstitious experience in order to be considered acceptable by God. You were to deny yourself of these pleasures. And if you did so, you'd begin to have these visions and you'd worship angels and you'd be puffed up and have these ecstatic experience, experiences that would demonstrate that you're a real Believer, someone really worth honoring, someone really worth respecting and looking up to. Now, if we think that this is just 
history, both of these, we're fooling ourselves. All right, we both see uh, legalism creep into the church in these man-made traditions, and we certainly see these ecstatic experiences that the Greeks were promoting here. We see how that's led people astray all over the place. We live in a culture whose banner is what I feel is my truth, right? My experience is my truth, and you can't tell me what truth is because you haven't had my experience. That's hogwash. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Now this, this was a, a, a commendation on worship from these Greeks here was, man, it's all about your experience. It's all about your emotions. And by the way, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be emotional when we worship. But they, it, we can't divorce our minds and we can't divorce our thinking from the word of God. Right? Our emotions have to filter through the lens of this unchanging anchor of truth called the Scripture. And what's being promoted here is this, this theology and this worldview that's based on experience and ecstatic worship, chasing one emotional high after the next emotional high concluding that if I don't feel emotionally high, God must not be there. God must not love me. A depressing place to be, right? Paul's saying, use your minds. Paul's saying, cling to the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints. Have your minds renewed by Scripture. Allow Scripture to inform your experience. Allow Scripture to inform your beliefs. Christ is sufficient and he's given you his all-sufficient word. So these Colossian Christians, they were being told that by submitting to the obsolete positive law and by having these mystical experiences that they would be approved before God. But the place that both of these lead to uh, is enslavement. And they devalue the finished work of Jesus. They're all about appearances, so point three, we get to that. Fear of man is all about appearances. Fear of man is all about appearances. That's what Paul's saying when, in verse 23 here, the first part. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. An appearance of wisdom. Appearance being where the emphasis is here, okay? Paul's saying that, that, that these things that you're being pressured to do, they may seem like there's some wisdom, but they're enslaving and they have everything to do with people pleasing and they have everything to do with appearances. And we're all about keeping up appearances, aren't we? And we even, in the, a lot of times, our, our relationship with Christ may even be about keeping up appearances. And Paul says in Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I would not be a servant of Christ. And if the Colossians succumb to the pressures that they're experiencing, according to the Apostle Paul's logic, he, he's saying, you will cease to be servants of Christ. And again, and I'm not talking about desiring to have a good reputation 
Right? We should all as believers desire to have good reputations in our community. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is when our fear of man, again, minimizes God's law and gospel and maximizes man's opinion, and it leads us to contradict the gospel of God, that, that, that's a dangerous place to be in. It's a dangerous place to be in, and that's, that's where the Colossian uh, church is in danger of being in. Appeasing man by contradicting the gospel equates to disobedience to God. Equates to disobedience to God. And I'll take, take it a step further this morning. Even us engaging in spiritual disciplines to appease man is the wrong heart posture. It's the wrong heart posture, and that's what all of this is about, right? Our, our heart posture before the Lord is our, 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 our hearts oriented toward God in the gospel. What has taken our hearts captive? Uh, we kind of live uh, in, in what's called the Bible Belt. Like, this is kind of the Bible Belt, right? No one in the 8 o'clock service really knew if we were still in the Bible Belt. We're kind of in the Bible Belt, right? I should have looked at a map, but yeah, we're technically in the Bible Belt. Where I'm from in South Georgia, like, it's like a capital Bible Belt. It's like, the, it's like, it's where it kind of starts and branches out, I think. And, um, and growing up uh, in the Bible Belt, I actually found it hard um, as I got older and I began to serve the local church. Um, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I, found, I found it difficult to minister in that context. And, and I'll tell you why. I actually, I, so I had a friend from uh, one of my best friends in high school. He uh, immigrated from India uh, to South Georgia, which is culture shock that I can't even imagine. And um, uh, and his family, uh, they were Hindu. And, uh, and so growing up, he immigrated in the fifth grade, and so he kind of learned English around then. And, and his parents, even to this day, they don't uh, speak English. But the, um, we became good friends. I would go over to his house. He'd come over to my house. And I remember um, uh, when I would go over to his house, I would see all the gods that they worship, right? Because it was a very pluralistic culture. And uh, they would light incense and pray to various gods that they believed would do various things for them. And, uh, and I remember trying to evangelize him uh, growing up and, uh, and even into my adult years trying to evangelize him. And it was very difficult to evangelize him because he was like, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Absolutely. Let me just throw a picture of Jesus in my collection of the, these other things. And, um, and, and it was really difficult getting through that this is exclusive. Like you got to abandon all this stuff. Like, the only way to have peace with God is through Christ Jesus alone. That was like, that concept was so foreign to him that it made it difficult to minister. I found that uh, to be very similar to ministering uh, in the Bible Belt in the sense of people in the local church have uh, a type of professional and personal life. Like, when I'm in the context of the local church in the Bible Belt, this is who I am. And when I would commend something... They're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. But that's relevant to me here in this building. Like, that's not relevant to the guy that leaves here and he's by himself and no one's looking. You're not speaking to that guy. You're just speaking to professional guy here with his suit and tie on. Does that make sense? Right? We have this, this ability in the Bible Belt to segregate. And what I found um, is that most people in the Bible Belt, they go to church, Right? It's the terminology that they use, the phrasing that they use, but they do that because that's what every respectable person does, right? You don't want Susie 
who's the, the gossip of the town, to catch wind that you didn't go and worship the Lord on Sunday morning because she's going to tell all the other gossipers in town and it's going to be a whole thing and everybody's going to know what you were doing on Saturday night. And, uh, and so people, in order to avoid that, would come on Sunday because to not do that was to not be a respectable member of society. And, uh, and I'm very pro us coming and worshiping on the Lord's Day. I think there's a biblical mandate for it. But I think we should do that because our hearts have been captivated by the gospel of God. Knowing what God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus 2,000 years ago, what the Holy Spirit has applied to us, we do it in response and we do it because the Bible commands. We don't do it to appease some gossip group. Right? We don't do it for appearance sake. And when you do it with the heart posture of one being captivated by the gospel, there's no professional and personal life. The gospel seeps its way into every aspect of your life. So you know that what I'm commending to you here right now from the pulpit isn't something that you apply with your butts in the chairs. It's something you apply to your whole life when you leave here. So what's our heart posture? Jesus gets to the heart posture. He talks about wrong motives in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 7. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And Jesus isn't saying here that you can't pray in public. And Jesus isn't saying that your prayers have to be brief in prayer meetings. Those appreciated. <clears throat> Let's wait for that to catch up for a moment. Now, Jesus here, he's cutting to the heart, Right? He's cutting to the heart. He's saying that hypocrites make sure that their so-called holiness is on display so that the world can see. That's what he's getting at. He's saying that hypocrites use empty, long-winded, mind-numbing, mystical prayers to showcase their spirituality. Jesus is saying, don't be like this. Don't be like this. Have your hearts oriented toward God alone. Have your hearts oriented toward God alone and allow that to animate your prayers. Now, heart posture, which leads us into the next point. Fear of man, as we should see by now, fear of man is bad for your soul. Fear of man is bad for your soul. And Paul says at the end of our text this morning, the back end of verse 23, speaking of these things the Greeks and the Jews are, are, are putting pressure on these believers at Colossians do. He says they're, no, they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're of no value. In this passage, it lands a double meaning. First and foremost, this, legalism and mysticism, it doesn't make you more holy. It does absolutely nothing for you spiritually. Nothing. It's of no value. That's what it means. Right, all these 
supplemental things that you're adding because your heart isn't oriented toward the Lord. It is of no spiritual benefit to you. None. What Paul means secondly is that not only is it not... uh, not only does it not benefit you spiritually, but it actually is just another way for you to indulge your flesh, right? It's feeding that wolf, right? That, that, that pride, that ego. So not only does it do nothing for you spiritually, but it's actually detrimental to your spiritual health. It's not good for your soul. It's not these regulations, these doctrines of man that run counter, uh, that run counterculture to the gospel, they do nothing but they, they do nothing but enslave you. They enslave you and they lead you into further bondage. They lead you into further sin. And Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he warned of this in chapter 17, verse 5. He said, Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. Paul is telling us this morning that we must worship God the way God has prescribed for us to worship him. And to do otherwise is to subscribe to another gospel. To do otherwise is to indulge our flesh, and ultimately, it's bad for our soul. And so what's the remedy? How, How do we repent? We repent by fearing God more than man. And I hope that you know when I say fear God, I mean, again, this gospel-saturated fear. Only, only a believer who's positionally right before God can fear God. This isn't something the unbeliever has the capacity to do. This is something only a believer can do. And Martin Luther, he actually defined the fear of God as this type of fear that a child has toward a loving father, a loving mother, based on his security and the way that his father and mother love him. He doesn't want to displease mom and dad. He wants to lovingly and affectionately obey them. I think that's, the, that's kind of what we're trying to capture when we say fear of God here. Uh, a few passages that I want to give you in regards to fear of God, fear of man. Matthew 10, 28, if you want to jot it down, it says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. David says, Psalm 27, 1, <clears throat> the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare. That's what we see going on with this first century church, right? There's a snare that's being laid by man. And he goes on, he says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So as I close, I want to give you just three ways Right? And this is not exhaustive by any means, but I just want to give you three biblical ways that you can minimize your fear of man and maximize your fear of God. And, uh, and I'm, the resources I'm about to commend to you are already on our uh, Coastal's Facebook page, and so you can go and get the resources from there. 
so you don't have to worry about remembering all of this, but it's simple enough to remember. Uh, First and foremost is we need to be in the Word of God. We need to have our minds renewed. There's no reason Christians shouldn't be reading the Word. No reason whatsoever. We should be reading the Word. If we can't read, we should be... There's books on audio. There's so many ways to digest the Word of God now. But uh, Ligonier has a great... I I find... You can't, I, for me personally, I need structure when I read the Bible. I, I can't just flop it open and, and pick and begin to read. I need, I need it to be organized for me. And so Ligonier uh, Ministries, and I, again, posted this online, they have a great, they have a curated list of the best Bible reading plans out there. And they did this at the beginning of 2018. It doesn't matter. We're halfway through 2018. Just start today. Start today. Go on there. You can find a plan. They range from five minutes a day to 45 minutes a day. Find the plan that meets you where you are and just stick with that plan. Just stick with that plan. Um, and so digest the Word of God. Romans 12, 1 through 2 talks about the transforming work of the Word on our minds. Uh, we can't maximize our fear of God and minimize our fear of man if our minds aren't being renewed by the Word. Secondly uh, is prayer. You need to set time aside to pray, right? Prayer, Marty just said, well, they, uh, well you need to set, set aside time to pray, Right? Uh, praying for me, uh, the discipline of prayer has always been one that I've personally struggled with. And so I do things to help navigate my prayer life. And one of the things I do is I pray through Scripture. And there's this small little 80 to 100 page book called Praying the Bible by a guy named Don Whitney. It's a fantastic book. It's been immensely helpful for me just establishing this regular devoted time uh, to pray. And, uh, and so that's, um, that's important for all of us. And uh, this opportunity we have to commune with the God who created us, right? Uh, and then third, is become a member of this local church. We're submitting ourselves to one another, right? Hebrews chapter 3 uh, talks about how your local body of believers link arms with you to warn you of the deceitfulness of sin, right? The Lord intends for you to be a member of a local church. It is biblical, and he intends for you to be a member of a local church because that is a means he uses by which he helps you persevere in the faith. And so we need one another. Um, so have your mind renewed by Scripture, set time aside to pray, become a member of a local church. And by God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, my prayer is that all of us would have our fear of man minimized and our fear of God maximized. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, that Christ is our sufficient Savior and you've given us a sufficient, enduring word, God, by which we can conform more into the image of Jesus. And so, uh, Lord, we are so grateful for our time here to worship you in spirit and in truth, God. And I pray, Lord, um, that, uh, um, God, that we would go out and that we would connect what we're doing here with the rest of our lives. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.